0: to create a listener account, and in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening, so you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat, and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello,
1: and welcome back to New Books in Law, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jane Richards, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Mark Clifford about his book, Today, Hong Kong, Tomorrow, the World. What China's Crackdown Reveals About Its Plan to End Freedom Everywhere. It's published by St Martin's Press in New York in 2022. Now, just to briefly introduce our guest today, Mark Clifford is the President of the Committee for Freedom in Hong Kong. He holds a PhD in history from the University of Hong Kong, and he lived in Asia from 1987 until 2021. Mark was Executive Director of the Hong Kong-based Asia Business Council, the Editor-in-Chief of the South China Morning Post in Hong Kong, and Publisher and Editor-in-Chief of The Standard Hong Kong. He held senior editorial positions at Businessweek and the Far Eastern Economic Review in Hong Kong and Seoul, and he's won numerous academic book and journalism awards. He was also on the board of directors of the company that published the pro-democracy newspaper Apple Daily before it was forced to shut down in June in 2021. Mark Clifford, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you, Jane. Pleasure to be here.
1: It's a pleasure to have you. Now, just to get us started, can you tell me a little bit about yourself and how you came to write Today Hong Kong, Tomorrow the World, what China's Crackdown reveals about its plans to end freedom everywhere?
2: Well, thanks. Uh, Nice place to start. Um, I had um, spent most of my adult life in, in Hong Kong at that point and 2019, when um, these uh, large scale demonstrations took place where a million, sometimes as many as two million people out of a city of seven and a half million would be out in the streets uh, protesting for more democracy and against uh, attempts to use new laws to crack down on Hong Kongers. And uh, I had recently finished a PhD at the University of Hong Kong uh, in the, the post-war colonial history, focusing on on Hong Kong and its its dramatic development in the years, the decades after 1945 and the the uh, terrible conflict before that. And uh, I, I wanted to try to contextualize uh, what was happening on the streets of Hong Kong and to to put the um, opposition to mainland Chinese rule in the context, uh, not only of um, uh, the, the kind of struggle, I guess, between the people of Hong Kong and their masters in Beijing, but also in the context of a place that had been a British colony for 156 years. And its its particular political development um uh, reflected this colonial legacy, but reflected a peculiar colonial legacy because, unlike almost every other colony in the world, Hong Kong did not, uh, could not look forward to independence. All it could look forward to was rule by China. And that rule by China ended up to be uh, much tougher, much more repressive than the Chinese government and the British colonial authorities had promised. So that was my starting point.
1: Yeah, and that's the really interesting point um, that, you know, we do have this basic law in Hong Kong that was supposed to run for 50 years from um, the time of the handover in 1990 years after that with the same way of life and rule of law and the same sort of um, freedoms that Hong Kong people had become accustomed to um, under British colonialism, notwithstanding, and we'll get to this later, but you do write in your book that, you know, uh, there was no democracy, um, but there was freedom. Um, we will talk about that later. I want to come back to the very start. You opened the book with a really bold statement about this. So you write, when the People's Republic of China resumed resume sovereignty over Hong Kong in 1997, it solemnly promised to uphold for 50 years the freedoms that had developed during the British colonial era. Halfway to that milestone, China has instead embarked on a campaign to systematically dismantle the territory's foundational, all underpinned by the rule of law. The party has done this with the help of the Hong Kong government, not democratically elected, and its business elite, who are too short-sighted, too concerned with immediate monetary or status advantages, or too willfully naive to understand what's at stake. Now, you've just talked about context, and so I'm wondering if you can expand upon this to provide more context for the listeners.
2: Sure. Sure. Um- well, uh, China very much wanted Hong Kong back. Uh, it was um, it's so an annoying; would be too mild a word to say uh, that for the People's Republic of China to have a British colony on uh, on its landmass um, was just intolerable. And uh, fortunately for the Chinese, the there was a lease on most of Hong Kong that was running out in 1997. And uh, the Chinese uh, told the British that they were going to, to take Hong Kong back. Uh, the British didn't like that, but there wasn't a lot they could do. The Hong Kong people really didn't like that because most of them or their parents or at least their grandparents had fled communist China after 1949 to get away from the repressive uh, regi- communist regime. And so there was a lot of uncertainty uh, in the 1980s as the handover was being negotiated. This uh, uncertainty, unease, uh, fear really was heightened when in June, 1989, Uh, Chinese uh, military killed hundreds of peaceful demonstrators in and around Tiananmen Square in Beijing, demonstrators who were peacefully calling for more democracy, less corruption, uh, sort of things that people demonstrate about all the time. So uh, in the run up to 1997, uh, China tried to reassure Hong Kongers that their way of life could continue. And it promised that for 50 years, There would be a a one country, two systems arrangement where it would all Hong Kong would be part of China, but it would have its own system, its own um, uh, its own government system, its own currency, its own tax system. And above all, its own system of civil liberties and freedoms and the basic law that you referred to uh, was a kind of mini constitution guaranteeing free speech, uh, freedom of religion. Uh, free press, uh, freedom of assembly, all the all the normal freedoms that that you or I would take for granted in any open society, um, and it it wasn't anything radical for Hong Kong. Hong Kong already had this. Uh, the Basic Law went further, and it promised that Hong Kong would have more freedoms, and it would also have democracy. The Basic Law explicitly promised that Hong Kong would move toward universal suffrage and that the Hong Kong people would be able to elect the mayor, who's called the chief executive, and the city council, which is called the legislative council. And that's really all Hong Kong people were pushing for, to be left alone, to be able to have their own way of life, and to elect their, their leaders, their political leaders. Uh, it was pretty simple and pretty uncontroversial, but for the guys in Beijing, and they are all guys, they're all men who uh, are ruthlessly running a the largest nation in the world, this was just too much. This is a country of 1.4 billion people, but the idea that seven or seven and a half million people in Hong Kong might actually elect their own mayor, elect their own city council, have the freedom to to run uh, anti-government newspapers, pro-democracy newspapers. This was just all too much for the for the guys in Beijing. And um, I think that's
1: really interesting because as you say there were um you know there was sort of this fear at Devon, as to what would happen but at the same time it seemed like for a little while at least that things might actually be okay I mean I think you know some of the most obvious outward manifestations of the warning signs were you know for example protests anti-extradition protests in 2003 and then the national education protests in 2012 of course the umbrella movement in 2014 and then in 2019 um you know, and this is, we can talk more about this, but there was, you know, things changed dramatically. So, you know, notwithstanding, there was this sort of like fear, it did seem okay. And yet again, I want to bring you back to your book and I'm just going to quote again. So you write, um, the tiny form of British colony is a testing ground for attempts to limit the freedoms of open societies. The communist destruction of the territory's liberties marks the only time in contemporary history when a totalitarian government has destroyed a free society, has shuttered a free press and ended free speech and freedom of assembly, and curtailed the right to be presumed innocent, the right to a jury trial, and the right to hold private property without government arbitrarily seizing it. Not since the Soviet takeover of Eastern Europe in the late 1940s and the destruction of Shanghai following the 1949 communist revolution in China have we seen anything like the devastation Beijing is wreaking on Hong Kong. The free world ignores the tactics on display there at its peril. Now, this is is a big claim but then I also I'm interested to know. So, with as you mentioned, this population of around seven million people, Asia, there's an advanced economy, um, and there's many, a population of many extremely wealthy people. Why should we care about Hong Kong?
2: Yeah. Um, well, right after the book came out, three weeks later, um, Russia invaded Ukraine, and so I'd have to uh, change that that uh, statement a little bit because uh, Ukraine and Hong Kong, I would say, are the two places that have been. Uh, ravaged by totalitarian regimes. Uh, So I think the lesson in Ukraine is that uh, we ignore um, dictators like Putin in Russia and Xi Jinping in China at our peril. And uh, what has happened in Hong Kong I think really should be a warning to the rest of the world that these are China's tactics. It's today Hong Kong, tomorrow the world. But the first step, the next step of course will be Taiwan. And I think we have to we have to ask ourselves if we want to live in a world where people like Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin can write the rules and that they can send in tanks or, in the case of Hong Kong, um, send in legal measures to basically steal people's lives. Uh, We'll talk more about Apple Daily, the pro-democracy newspaper I was involved with. But in that case, the government has uh, stolen the liberty of the, of the founder, stolen the assets of the public shareholders, stolen the jobs and everything that went into building up a newspaper of 26 years, arbitrarily seized it. Uh, what, what's going on in Ukraine with people being killed, uh, bombed, uh, strafed, shot brutally is, is objectively far worse. Just as I would say that what's happening in Xinjiang in uh, Western China, where something like 1 million Uyghurs have uh, gone through internment camps, the largest internment of a civilian population since the the Nazi period, the end of World War II, uh, that's worse. But Hong Kong is a lesson to what can happen to free, open societies. Uh, Tibet is another example where uh, the Chinese have have run roughshod over a, a people and a culture. But hong kong is unusual and is worth paying attention to for the rest of the world because it was one of the leading global cities it was the asian financial center it often had more uh, ipos initial public offerings than even london or new york this was a place that was networked in that on the surface was like a london or a new york and the fact that free press free assembly all the other freedoms that uh, we take for granted has been destroyed is a real object lesson to the rest of the world. And if Putin's invasion of Ukraine uh, underscores the danger of just letting dictators uh, move one place at a time and not resisting them. I think that we need to resist as forcefully as we can in Hong Kong to keep China from aggressively moving on Taiwan and and beyond.
1: And now bringing these sort of two points together, so you've mentioned just now um, freedom of assembly, um, you've mentioned free press, and one of the other points you've mentioned is also that of universal suffrage. So as you said, in Hong Kong's basic law, there is a promise of universal suffrage, and this is what uh, the Umbrella Movement was all about. So that was in 2014, and initially inspired... um, by then-tenured professor Benny Tai from the University of Hong Kong. So his idea was to occupy a central with love and peace. So he was or is um, embraced um, civil disobedience. And so this is something now that's not allowed in Hong Kong. Interestingly, fairly recently some um, people protesting for Ukraine, I think there were a group or people standing near each other and they were actually sort of just a tie it, back um, together but two people standing and they were actually arrested um, and charged I think under the COVID regulations so there's not one cannot even protest um, regarding Ukraine and nevertheless political freedoms in Hong Kong anymore so let's just let's just talk a little bit about um, this promise of universal suffrage and the umbrella movement because this was you know this 2014 did sort of set the scene somewhat for 2019. And one of the interesting points that came out of your book in, about the Umbrella Movement um, was this idea that you you wrote about an activist friend of yours called Yan, and he, you said that in response to the Occupy Central Movement, um, that the then chief executive, so the, for the mayor of Hong Kong, as you've mentioned, then CY Long, he actually sort of inspired the Hong Kong independence movement. And your friend Yan said that nobody talked about independence and that it was not popular discourse and there was no analytical framework. However, CY drummed up the issue. Now, recently, under the national security law um, of 2020, secession is now a crime, So can you tell me more about this idea of Hong Kong independence and the degree of traction it actually has um, and whether or not this actually plays any part in the sort of resistance against China and dictatorship that you've just
2: mentioned? Yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting question. As I said, um, the idea of independence for Hong Kong is... um, it's laughable. I mean, as unless China changed dramatically, I mean, really dramatically, and it was a much more federal system and they were very relaxed. I mean, there's no reason that Hong Kong could not technically um, exist as an independent state. And it had many of the trappings, as I said, with its own currency, uh, its own tax system, its own administrative system. Uh, it uh, had uh, agreements, it's a separate member of the World Health Organization, the World Trade Organization, but the idea that Hong Kong could run its own foreign policy and be an independent nation would completely depend on on, on China. So I just, I, it was a non-starter. Nobody thought about it. As uh, we were talking about the colonial period earlier, I made the point that virtually every other colony around the world could look forward to independence. but. Hong Kong and Macau could not, it was just unthinkable. Uh, And what I remember is that in around 2013, so a year before the Umbrella Movement, there started to be warnings uh, from Chinese officials about independence. And I remember seeing, uh, somebody carrying a British colonial era flag. And I think there were two or three other people. It was at uh, one of the demonstrations. And it just seemed laughable to me that, you know, this was the supposed independence movement. I mean, it was a joke. It wasn't serious. But the uh, the pro-communist elite, the CY Lung Chinese officials, uh, started drumming this up as if this were some threat to Hong Kong. And I think that they... Uh, You know, the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, it needs an enemy. It really needs something to organize against. And so it made up this idea of independence. The interesting thing is, the more they talked about it, the more people started saying, hmm, this might be interesting. And so it went from not even being on the political radar to the... Uh, I can't remember the exact numbers, but something like one out of six, one out of seven people in Hong Kong had some vague support for the notion of independence. And that's that's pretty remarkable. If you were a pro-independence organizer, that would be a huge success. And I, But I do think that mo- much of that came from the drumbeat uh, where the CCP and people like CY Lung were um, going on and on about how independence was this huge threat. It was never a threat. And as I say, I think it was largely, the idea was largely stoked by the CCP.
1: That's um, is also under the National Security Act, um, collaboration, foreign collaboration, and that's and we'll talk later, I think that's one of the charges uh, against Jimmy Lai. I just want to quickly go back though, one interesting point you just made was about the CCP looking for an enemy. And so one of, I found this really interesting, Um, you, you gave an account of some booksellers and publishers that were kidnapped in Hong Kong Um, And disappeared in 2015. I mean, from people outside Hong Kong and China, it's sort of hard to understand why, I mean, a book publisher or uh, a bookseller might be kidnapped. Um, It just seems almost, you know, farcical. Can you tell me a little bit more about this and the significance of the kidnap of these booksellers?
2: Yeah, it's a really interesting question. because Hong Kong was this uh, separate system within China, it was a place where activities uh, could take place that couldn't take place anywhere else in, in China. So for example, June 4th every year, there was a, a protest um, or a vigil, a commemoration in Victoria Park in Hong Kong, commemorating the, those who were killed in 1989 in Tiananmen. That couldn't take place anywhere else in China. The booksellers uh, were in a kind of parallel world. They published books Uh, sometimes reputable, sometimes gossipy and salacious about Chinese leaders and uh, about corruption and political intrigue and all sorts of things that the Chinese leadership wouldn't want. This was tolerated for the first um, more or less two decades after the handover. But after Xi Jinping took power in 2012, the attitude toughened. And uh, I know from people that I spoke with, and we can see from the kidnappings, that uh, it, things that were tolerated in Hong Kong just weren't going to be tolerated any longer. And um, it does seem risible, really, that you one would kidnap a bookseller. But in fact, five people were kidnapped, some from Hong Kong. One, um, Guimin He, who uh, is a Swedish citizen, was actually kidnapped from his his apartment in Thailand and somehow smuggled back into China, probably through Cambodia or Laos, where he reappeared and said he had voluntarily returned to his um, country of birth to settle an outstanding uh, traffic accident that had happened 10 years ago. Well, that was 2015 and he's still in Chinese custody. Um, So I, I think it's a, the fact that booksellers would be kidnapped is a testament to how much the Chinese communist party fears free discussion, free speech, uh, and an open society. I mean, in, you know, in the U.S. or or Europe or Japan or South Korea, it would be perfectly normal to publish books criticizing the leadership. But China decided that it couldn't take it anymore and that Hong Kong was a kind of uh, this is an example. But I think Hong Kong became like an irri- irritating pebble in the shoe. You know, you just need to take the shoe off and get get deal with the pebble. And uh, the booksellers were a kind of irritating pebble, and they were dealt with very harshly. They were held uh, for some time in China and subjected to uh, pretty tough conditionings uh, and forced, in many cases, to sign a confession and say that they would not say anything. One brave man uh, blew the whistle on it, and that's how the story came out.
1: And that's a really interesting point. I want to pick up on a little bit more about this, on the idea of um, the sort of Communist Party being fearful of, you know, diverse ideas or questioning opinions. Um, and then sort of going back a bit, um, I love speaking with historians like yourself because, you know, you do give such a great context and you talk about Hong Kong's colonial history. And then in um, it also comes through sort of China's interpretation of history of Hong Kong um, compared to, you know, other representations of Hong Kong throughout the history, there seems to be these competing historical narratives, um, and in some ways, you could be argued that these attitudes and narratives have actually shaped the policies of the central government up until the handover in nineteen ninety-seven. And since then, can you tell me a bit more about Hong Kong's colonial history and the impact of this legacy on the current political situation?
2: Yeah, that's a that's an important question. Um, I think that. Um, China has never understood Hong Kong and going back to the 1980s when Deng Xiaoping and Maggie Thatcher, Margaret Thatcher, the British prime minister first met in 1982 and beyond, the Chinese communists told themselves that Hong Kong people were oppressed by the colonial masters, that, that they couldn't wait to throw off the colonial yoke and that they would embrace the motherland. And that was patently not true, but uh, that was the line that um, Chinese needed to t- tell their superiors. And that's what they said. And I think a lot of the policies um, were built around the idea that Hong Kongers were going to em- embrace China. And I-, I think Hong Kongers are rightly proud of everything that China has, uh, all, um, the many positive accomplishments of China, but they don't love the Chinese Communist Party. And as I mentioned, so many of them or their parents or their grandparents fled communist violence and oppression and tyranny. And so of course they were going to be wary about the Chinese coming in and messing around with their freedoms. They were right to worry, but because the Chinese couldn't see this, wouldn't see this, didn't see this, they were caught off guard, and so the first big demonstration in two thousand three, which you you mentioned, and it was also a, you know a, around national security issues, the um, the chief executive at the time, Tung Chi Hua, and uh, the Chinese um, Party were expecting around twenty five thousand uh, people to come out. It would have been a you know, a sizable demonstration in any city. Uh, but the fact is 500,000 people came out, 20 times as many. So their intelligence was so poor. The intelligence failure, I think, is is shocking. And it shows how little uh, either that they didn't tell the truth to their hires up, higher ups or uh, they just actually had no feel for the pulse of Hong Kong, for what people in Hong Kong were thinking. So again and again, Beijing has been shocked and surprised by the depth of the opposition to communist rule what's made matters worse is that in this kind of very half-baked thin marxist uh, dialectical analysis they decided and chi- you know chinese officials are pretty open talking to me and others about this that that uh, hong kong was at a stage in its marxist historical development where um the forces of the bourgeoisie the business uh, community uh were were at the fore and so this again this is a very uh one-dimensional marxist analysis but they decided since the business community was the progressive community hong kong was a business city therefore you need to keep business is a quick step to say you needed to keep business happy and it was fine if you had a sort of corrupt get more or less corrupt get along go along uh system where property developers and other big businesses could uh essentially get what they wanted and you didn't really have to worry about the people of hong kong the workers, by the way, so to even get a minimum wage legislation and took 12 years after the handover, not really a very good record for a communist country. And in fact, the social conditions in Hong Kong have fueled a lot of the unhappiness that the communists think that that is what's driving the unhappiness. I would say it's a major component, but it's not the driver. But um, and anyway, I think everyone would agree that the um, record of the Chinese leadership in Hong Kong has been appalling when it's come to, to housing in particular, but uh, social conditions for the mass of, of working Hong Kongers.
0: slash nbn50 to get 50% off.
1: Perhaps this is a good time just to sort of jump ahead a bit. So you do write about the sort of wage disparity and the income gap in Hoffen. I feel something that's skipped over or treated completely separately um, in other things that I've read about Hong Kong. So later on in the book, you write that um, Hong Kong will likely continue to be a pleasant place, resentment towards the elite, and especially the mainland elite, by the local Cantonese population notwithstanding, Hong Kong will p- continue to be perhaps the most pleasant city in China in which we rich. Yet you also write that because of the changed political situation, there's a cliche, um, which is, a, um, that goes, the mountains are high and the emperor is far away but that this is no longer the case in hong kong so can you tell me a bit about the sort of wealth disparity um, and the impact of this and the implications for hong kongers of the should we say diverse economic circumstances
2: yeah um well i think um when i say it's a pleasant place it's a it'll be pleasant the way Monaco is pleasant. It's pleasant if you're rich and you can take advantage of the nice clubs and the good food and the cheap wages, quite frankly. and uh, the beautiful mountains and country parks in in Hong Kong. Uh, But it won't be so good if you're in the sights of the authorities. And the fact that over a billion US dollars is being spent on national security measures uh, in the the next couple of years, a little bit vague as to the timeframe, but that's a lot of money to be spent looking for enemies. So if you're an enemy, and you've stepped out of line uh yeah the emperor is not far away at all the emperor has come to hong kong and hong kong is regarded as a kind of troublesome peripheral region that needs to be beaten into submission but for the people that are are not causing trouble and have money it'll be a nice place and, and from their perspective it might be nicer you won't have a lot of troublesome protesters blocking you from getting to your club or your restaurant or or your work and uh Every everything will be nice, but it'll be um, it will remain, I believe, to be an economically bifurcated city. the The uh, income inequality is worse than Zimbabwe. I mean, we're really talking um, poor, you know, what we think of as kind of benighted third world countries when we think of the income disparity. Put the wealth disparity on top when you account for property and stocks and other assets, and it's far, far worse. So it's an amazingly unequal society. And um, despite their professed commitment to socialism, communism and uh, other things that will help people at the bottom of the economic ladder, the first 25 years of Hong Kong, of Chinese rule have shown nothing of that sort.
1: Yeah, and just to sort of put some of this in context a bit, just bring it back because you do, this is a theme that comes through in the book. So there's one of the chapters which is a dying city rises from the ruins and then you also write later on um, about economic boom in the sort of post Tiananmen Square massacre period. So firstly, um, in the post-World War II era, you write about how Hong Kong was described by an American journalist as a dying city Because you argue that refugees, disease and poverty were the unlikely foundations on which Hong Kong's prosperity was built. And then you write later on um, in the post-Tianan period where there was a boom in the Hong Kong economy, which also saw its greater integration in the Pearl River Delta. Can you tell me more about the significance of um, the sort of, economic context and perhaps this links to what you talked about earlier in terms of the ccp narrative of the sort of very narrow marxist rhetoric um regarding that people will just sort of accept communist rule
2: yeah a really important um aspect of hong kong that uh, i think as you suggest is often underplayed um, uh, Hong Kong was a, always a kind of, sometimes it was described as a bridge. I think of it as kind of an airlock between uh, East and West, if we can use those sort of old-fashioned terms. Uh, it was much freer than China, um, but not as free as the West uh, or you know open societies. And so there weren't capital controls. So money could come from um, outside of China into Hong Kong, and often it would filter into into China legally, illegally, it depended. Uh, and it would filter out of China, often illegally. And so you know, this just became a very, very important transmission point or node. And of course, it became a you know huge international business center, uh, as we discussed, major capital markets. And uh, China has always thought that this was the city was only about money. And uh, that it could simply buy business off, that it could buy people off. And so after 2003, when we had the, the big demonstration with a half a million people against the national security law uh, and the same year of SARS, the first kind of modern plague, I guess, that killed almost 300 people in Hong Kong and saw the city shut down and. Uh, And it was in the wake of the Asian financial crisis. Things looked really grim. Beijing very consciously turned on the economic taps and most importantly, opened up tourism. So we went from almost no mainland tourists to in 2018, over 60 million or over 50 million mainland tourists. Uh, unbelievable number. That was great in many ways for a lot of jobs, but it also left Hong Kong people feeling a bit overwhelmed. And so Beijing has just always thought that it could buy buy off Hong Kong. And obviously it, it opened up a lot of opportunities to Hong Kong businessmen in the mainland, uh, particularly p- for property developers, but for a whole variety of, of businesses. There was one um, estimate that is that Hong Kong uh, based companies employed as many as 12 million people around the Pearl River Delta and the factories, uh, you know, upriver from Hong Kong. That's, you know, nearly twice the population of Hong Kong. So the the economic ties are really, really important. Hong Kong would not have th- uh, survived, thrived really in this um, 1990s and beyond period if it weren't for China. But um I think that the COVID um, challenges have really uh, put into stark relief the, the future role of Hong Kong because it's lar- largely been shut off from the rest of the world. And I think, uh, as you alluded to earlier with the Ukrainian demonstration, there's a way in which the COVID restrictions have been used to shut down political freedoms and also shut Hong Kong off from the rest of the world. So it seems that the future strategy is to make Hong Kong part of the Pearl River Delta, this, this um, agglomeration of nearly 100 million people that's in and around Hong Kong and Southern Guangdong and, and Macau. Uh, but I'm not sure what that means for Hong Kong's relations with the rest of the world. And so I'm not really sure what the economic future for Hong Kong is. It's had a, it's had a remarkable ability to keep... Inventing and reinventing itself but um, as the chinese economy slows and as uh, hong kong's traditional role of being an intermediary or a bridge or a node or an airlock uh between china and the rest of the world as that uh as that is called into question i think we have to look really hard at what the future economic uh, rationale for hong kong is
1: right and as you say um what the sort of central government has discovered is that Hong Kong is more than just its, just its economy and Hong Kong's citizens are more than just sort of economically minded. And you've mentioned um, in Hong Kong, or well, Hong Kong has been traditionally up until two years ago, the only place in China where Tiananmen Square protests are uh, have been permitted until, of course, in 2020, when the protests were, or the demonstration, was canceled due to COVID, and of course, again, last year. I'm wondering then if you can tell me a little, just a bit more about the culture of protests in Hong Kong up until 2019 and then since then.
2: Yeah, so interesting, and again, as you, um as you say, the Chinese authorities really mes- misread Hong Kong. They thought Hong Kong people was just about the money, just about politics. You know, I had so many business people, even after the Tiananmen Square protests in Hong Kong, just say that Hong Kong people didn't care about politics. And that was simply nonsense. Hong Kongers have always cared about politics. Uh, going back to the late 19th century, it has the political expression has often was often squelched during the colonial period, and uh, colonial authorities got a lot of help from the business community, both the foreign business community and the local Chinese merchant elite, if, if we can call them that, uh, in uh, keeping politics uh, reserved for the elite and keeping popular participation out of politics. But what happened in the 1980s and 1990s uh, when... It was clear that hong kong was going back to china was a dramatic acceleration in political participation i mean all of a sudden china was coming to hong kong the slogan after the killings in tiananmen in 1989 is today's china is tomorrow's hong kong and i think people rightly worried that the repression the brutality That they saw inflicted by the Chinese Communist Party on the people of Beijing and the people of the mainland would come to Hong Kong and uh, they were right. And so they started organizing. They the kind of pro-democracy, pro-open society forces got a lot of help from the last governor, uh, a man named Chris Patton, who really tried to push uh, democratic reforms in the five years that he had. It was too little, too late, and the British uh, will forever um, bear the the responsibility and the guilt for not doing more and more quickly to develop a culture of openness in, in Hong Kong. But there we are, Patton did what he could, and he also made Hong Kong people believe in themselves. He made them understand what an extraordinary city that they were part of, that they had created, and that they needed to protect that. Uh, Fast forward um, through the handover in 97, there were certainly protests at the time and afterwards. And then that big demonstration in 2003 that we've talked about a couple of times, led ultimately to the resignation of um, several uh, effectively cabinet ministers and the chief executive. Uh, It was a political earthquake. And I think at that point, China started toughening, started realizing, hey, this idea of elections is not so good if we don't know who's going to win the elections. We're happy to have free elections as long as we Uh, determine and know who the winner is ahead of time. And so um, I don't mean to sound flip about that. I think that because China so misread the people of Hong Kong and so so convinced that they'd be just happy to vote for whatever Communist Party candidate came along, that they didn't understand the depth of of, uh, protest. And so the two sides kept escalating as it became clear that uh, China wasn't serious about universal suffrage, wasn't serious about freedom in Hong Kong, wasn't serious about letting Hong Kong people rule Hong Kong, which was the slogan, Uh, wasn't clear about, wasn't serious about um, Hong Kong people being masters of their own house. As that became uh, more and more evident, uh, the The protests uh, escalated and the 2014 Occupy Central umbrella protests that we've we've talked about a little earlier were direct reaction to a very clear um, drawing of the lines by uh, Beijing authorities that said there, there really wasn't going to be democracy. Interestingly, it wasn't older people. It wasn't the generation that had been fighting for decades. It was young people, students like Joshua Wong, who was a teenager then, who had been born Less than a year before the handover, born in October 1996, it was the kids, the students that that led the protest. They just had had enough. And this totally shocked the Chinese because they thought the new generation would grow up loving the motherland, loving China, doing whatever the authorities in Beijing wanted. And instead, Joshua Wong and, and you know, thousands, tens of thousands of other students, young people said enough is enough. We're not going to take this dictatorship anymore.
1: Yeah, and I think that's interesting. And it it leads into my next question. Um, Because you write about, and I quote, instead of fostering a Chinese identity, the mainland government succeeded largely in nurturing a stronger sense of Cantonese identity. And we see this in people like Joshua Wong um, and Agnes Chow and Nathan Law and all of the, the young people that have, you know, sort of risen up and claimed this identity during the 2019 movement. Can you tell me a bit more, a bit more about this uh, identity?
2: Yeah, no, I think it's uh, it's it's so ironic because uh, uh, the reversion to the motherland, the reversion of sovereignty as the Chinese would have it, um, was supposed to result in a more kind of Chinese feeling uh, defined by the authorities in Beijing as kind of pan-Chinese, People's Republic of Chinese, Chinese Communist Party. And uh, quite the opposite happened. The antipathy verging on hatred that many young Hong Kongers feel towards the mainland, towards the language, uh, towards using social media apps, towards every aspect of the mainland is just breathtaking. And it's uh, it's developed um, more, more and more. So whether it's Cantonese food, Cantonese slang, uh, m- attempts to make Cantonese more of a proper written language rather than being more of an oral one. Uh, movies, uh, I mean, it's every aspect of daily life. There's more and more of a of a separation between um, Hong Kong and the mainland, and it's it, it's sort of like the. The Chinese, you know, said, "Oh, we love you. We love Hong Kong." And it's like you love someone so much that you smother them. And the the people in Hong Kong are like, "Don't smother us. You know, we want our way of life." And of course, the protests are—you know—it runs the gamut from films and food and music to to protests. But um, these defined uh, Hong Kong, and they defined it in in uh, opposition, really, to the mainland. And so the mainland ended up, whether it's the independence movement. Or a greater sense of Cantonese identity, uh, the mainland ended up with exactly the opposite of what it wanted.
1: That's interesting. And it was in two thousand and three um, that you know that you mentioned that it did lead to sort of one of the a chief executive. Um, and I want to talk a little bit more about this because we have had uh, over the weekend, just as we're recording. Um, a new chief executive has um, has been uh, so-called elected in Hong Kong and in some foreign media are calling it a rubber stamp election. And so I'm just talking about John Lee at the moment. So... I'll just skip ahead so I'll ask you about him just sort of in this context. So he's a form of police officer and previous to that you wrote that the other chief executives have come from a business and administrative background. He was an unrivalled nominee um, for Hong Kong's next chief executive. Um, Now, just for a bit of context, to be uh, elected he needed to be supported, um, he needed... 751 votes of a committee of 146, 461 uh, elites who are pre-selected for their sort of favourable attitudes towards Beijing. And I, I think he got 99% of this vote. And one thing I found really interesting, because it, reading your book, my impression was that he's almost positioned himself as the next chief executive. So I want to ask you... What, in your opinion, are some of the implications for Hong Kong in the appointment of John Lee?
2: Well, they're not good. As you say, he's the first one who comes from a security background. Uh, he's been groomed by the mainland. He's spent significant time with mainland security authorities in the mainland. He visited Xinjiang a few years ago, uh, the, the um Region in Western China where the Uyghur Muslims are uh, being put into internment camps, pronounced all was good and well there. And um, perhaps it's a, you know, Hong Kong can learn from the kind of experiences that uh, the Chinese are uh, inflicting on people in peripheral regions. I'm paraphrasing here. Uh, So, and, and, you know, I've had some personal uh, uh, kind of indirect dealings with him. When I was a director at Next Digital, which published Apple Daily, he was the one that shut down the newspaper. He sent a letter freezing our bank accounts, no court order, no review by anyone that that we know about. Um, But as secretary for security, which was his job uh, then, he said that he had, quote, reason to believe, end quote, that we had violated the national security law. This sort of heavy handed, you know, dictatorial action where you shut a company, throw people out of work, uh, effectively steal a hundred million dollar company uh, is, you know, it's outrageous. And if, you know, he goes around saying there's a free press in Hong Kong, he can say whatever he wants because he's he's the leader. But that doesn't make it so. I mean, he, you know, he cost, um, you know, he cost us a business. And more importantly, he cost Hong Kong people the leading pro-democracy newspaper. And he did that all on his say-so. I say so. As they say No oversight, no uh, realistic appeal except to him. Um, And uh, we're out of business. So, you know, I don't really think that John Lee augurs anything but uh, more repression for for Hong Kong. I know there are people who say that as as a strong security minded leader he could take some risks and open up. It's possible. I mean, people often use the example of Richard Nixon, hardline anti-communist going to China, only he could do that. That's true. But for every Nixon, there are a hundred or a thousand hardline people who don't make those sorts of compromises. We have seen nothing in John Lee's uh, attitude to suggest that it's his appointment is anything but uh, more repression, more crackdown for Hong Kong.
1: Yeah, and I think that's really interesting because what it... One possible implication may be, as you mentioned before, that in terms of Hong Kong being a pleasant place, so there may be this sort of stability, um, but at the cost of these things like freedom of the press, freedom of speech, um, any sort of discourse at all that goes against um, the sort of party line. So perhaps this is a good time because you've you've talked about uh, Next Digital just now. Can you tell me a bit about Jimmy Lai? I found this really interesting reading your book um, because he he started um, Next Digital and Apple Daily, which you just mentioned, was shut down, and it was a real rags to riches story. Um, yeah, please, can you tell me about Jimmy Lai and, and the significance of his arrest and being still held in jail at the moment?
2: Jimmy Lai is an extraordinary uh, individual. I've known him for almost 30 years. We're not, uh, not close friends, um, but you meet someone once or twice a year for 30 years, you get a pretty good measure of the person. Um, and I was uh, fortunate enough to be invited um, to join the board of directors as an independent director at Next Digital, the publisher of Apple Daily in 2018. And uh, I watched uh, Jimmy prepare for jail. And that's where he is today. He's uh, just to remind people who might not know him, he's a 74-year-old devout Roman Catholic uh, who's now in solitary confinement in a maximum security prison, Stanley Prison, in on the south coast of Hong Kong Island. And I have to wonder what kind of city, what kind of society people like John Lee and the uh, authorities in Beijing, his masters, uh, are, are running when... They need to lock up a 74 year old um, person who's not a threat to anybody for his ideas. Jimmy believed in freedom, and he came to Hong Kong as a young boy. I think he was about 12 years old. He was a stowaway, an illegal immigrant. He was a child laborer. He worked in a textile factory, taught himself English by reading the dictionary, and worked his way up. He built uh, first a fortune uh, owning uh, a textile factory. Then he started a fast fashion um, uh, clothing chain, Giordano, but then he saw what happened in 1989 in the Tiananmen killings, and that radicalized him. And he decided to fight for freedom in Hong Kong. He started a magazine, Next Magazine, then he started Apple Daily, uh, all just devoted to freedom and democracy for Hong Kong. He, he knew the risks he was running, but he went ahead anyway. After the national security law came in, uh, he he continued to speak out. We did a he and I did a number of weekly um um live stream uh, broadcasts um and we had everybody from the last governor of hong kong chris Patton, to former political prisoners like Nathan sharansky to uh the former archbishop of hong kong cardinal zen uh just talking about the issues of the day and it was clear that um jimmy knew that he was uh running a risk uh, of going to prison he's now been in prison since december 2020 Every time uh, he makes a court appearance, he's put in chains, put in manacles, uh, just so that John Lee and Xi Jinping and the uh, communist uh, authorities can show who's in charge in Hong Kong. And they cannot accept the idea that a man could speak out freely and speak for freedom. And I think that uh, reflects very, very badly on what Hong Kong has become. And
1: perhaps this is a good um point for me to ask you you just mentioned about you know this uh this sort of fear and this crackdown and the crackdowns do seem very extreme as you say this 74 year old man and you know he was led uh during some of his charges at least or some of his um his trials you know these pictures of him shackled and i mean he has never any sort of escape attempt um not in any sort of seriousness. So just to sort of bring it back, um, one of the sort of one of these major crackdowns were these sort of mass arrests that you write about. Um, And Benny Tai, another person who's also in prison, who was a tenured professor, associate professor at Hong Kong U, he's also um, he was involved in the sense um, that he was arrested. So there were these primary elections. And all of the candidates who were to stand for not the Legislative Council, sorry, the District Council elections, which is sort of like local council for those outside of Hong Kong. So they were all arrested in a dawn raid. Now my question is, why was the Hong Kong government, the Liaison Officers of the Central People's Government in Hong Kong and the Mainland Ministry of Affairs in Hong Kong so seemingly afraid of a primary election for a a Democratic Legislative Council members when they couldn't actually win a majority in LegCo anyway?
2: Yeah, it's a good question, isn't it? I think it shows the depth of fear that the people in Zhongnanhai and in the the centre of ruling power in Beijing feel about freedom. They're afraid of freedom. They're afraid of Hong Kong. I mean, why would the rulers of the largest country in the world care about a little place of seven and a half million people that was pretty much just minding its own business. I mean, Hong Kongers weren't trying to export revolution or even democracy to to China. Um, And I think it's because they know that uh, they're opposed by the people of Hong Kong. I I was going to say that they know they're on the wrong side of history, but I actually think they think they're on the right side of history. They think That having a small group of people, or in this case, it increasingly looks like one person, Xi Jinping, deciding everything is the right way to go to develop an economy. And it might be... arguable that in playing catch-up that uh, when a country is quite poor and is is trying to catch up to um, what its neighbors are, are doing, it's, you know, it's fair to have, you know, a pretty tough ruler in some circumstances. But, you know, we're at a point now where China is kind of middle-income country. Uh, it's trying to be more creative. And yet, It can't take free ideas. China's going the opposite direction. And unfortunately, uh, Hong Kong is a kind of collateral damage. Hong Kong is an example of everything China is not. So is Taiwan, by the way. They showed that you can have open, modern, prosperous, politically free societies. And the Chinese authorities want to tell their people that China's not ready. You can't have democracy, can't have freedom, can't have openness. We have to listen to what Xi Jinping says. I mean, come on. This is going back to the days of Mao and a personality cult. I mean, it feels like every week China is becoming more like North Korea. It's becoming a caricature of a a, a personality cult-led state. And unfortunately, people like Benny Tai, Jimmy Lai, dozens, scores of other people that we would celebrate in most countries as being active, engaged citizens are in jail or they fled. I was in London last week and I met a number of these young district counselors and they they were elected officials. They had to leave. They would be in jail or they, you know, best would be neutered. Instead, they're going to be a great asset to, to England, Scotland, the United Kingdom, uh, it's, it's Hong Kong's loss, it's China's loss. It's a very, very sad uh, misreading of, of what Hong Kong was.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've read um, quite a bit of Benny Tai's scholarship and I, what struck me um, a few years ago at least when I was reading it is it does almost come across as quite moderate and as you say, it's a sort of work and he's the sort of person like Jimmy Lai that might actually be celebrated um, anywhere else.
2: Yeah, absolutely. But it's just, it's, I was gonna say, it's not just the two of them, though. I mean, there are hundreds of people, Mm -hmm. you know, the district council elections that you, uh, you mentioned, which were overwhelmingly uh, won in November uh, 2019 by the, um, by the pro-democracy people. I mean, these are like young, politically engaged people. I mean, you know, most countries again, would celebrate it. They want people to be more engaged politically. They want people to be involved in, in working with their, their colleagues, their neighbours, their friends to to make a better society. I mean, why you want to throw people like that in jail and drive them out of the city is, is beyond me. I think it's a historic miscalculation.
1: Yeah, and I feel China Morning Post, which it's um, in Hong Kong, it's known as SCMP and it's Hong Kong's main English language broadsheet. Um, and now... So, Apple, in, I, I just want to talk a bit about press freedom. Um, so you've talked about Apple Daily being shut and, of course, Stand News was also shut in 20, December 2021 after similar raids on its offices and allegations of publishing so-called seditious materials. And then as we're recording this around 10 day, days ago, the Hong Kong Foreign Correspondence Club announced that it would suspend its human rights press awards also in addition in the last two years hong kong's dropped in the world free press rankings in the most recent, only very recently it dropped to 148 out of 180 in the world now that's down 60 places from just last year and down from 18th place 20 years ago can you comment a bit about freedom of the press today in hong kong
2: <laughs> well there's not a lot to comment on because there's a lot not a lot of freedom of the press um uh you know it's remarkable that there are journalists who are still working in hong kong especially in the chinese language media Mm -hmm. doing their best um within pretty strict uh confines um and uh it's encouraging to see that there are a number of um kind of um um, grassroots initiatives online that are springing up um, not only in Hong Kong, but around the world to, uh, among the Hong Kong diaspora to try to keep covering issues. But, you know, there's no substitute for if you have a newspaper like Apple Daily that had 600 editorial people that could really cover the courts, companies, uh, obviously protests, uh, you know, there's n- no substitute for that kind of um you know really blanket coverage and also what it does for to make other newspapers competitive because once apple was shut then other newspapers started uh, stopped covering courts as much stopped becoming as aggressive so again it's very sad i think that the reporters without border numbers that you quote, Hong Kong going from uh, 18th place two decades ago to 148th place out of 180. It's, it's getting down there at almost like China, North Korea kinds of levels. I mean, that that says it all. I mean, there is no press freedom. I, I, we have didn't mention this before. I have seven colleagues from Apple Daily who are in jail. We mentioned Jimmy Lai, but there's six other people. When John Lee shut down Apple Daily, He didn't just freeze the bank accounts of our key operating subsidiaries. He didn't just make it impossible for us to get uh, monthly subscriptions from our 600,000 subscribers. He also took journalists away. Our CEO, who was a longtime editor-in-chief, is in jail. The editor-in-chief is in jail. Four other editorial people are in jail. Jimmy Lai has been convicted on some minor um, civil disobedience charges. The other six people have been in jail almost a year now with no trial. What kind of justice is that? What does that say about China's adherence to the basic law and the rights and freedoms that were promised to the people of Hong Kong? It says they're worth less than the paper that they're, those promises are worth less than the paper that they were written on.
1: And then, so without press freedom in Hong Kong, for people listening who would like to know more about the situation in Hong Kong, what would you recommend?
2: Well, uh, obviously, I think my, my book is uh, is worth reading. There are a number of other uh, good books that have come out on Hong Kong, and I'm, I'm delighted to see that the world um, is continuing to pay attention to Hong Kong. I mean, I, again, I don't want to say that Hong Kong's suffering is, uh, is on a level of what's happening in Ukraine most dramatically, but the destruction of a free city is something that we should we should all learn from. And, and I think... Um, uh, trying to um, you know, just keep reading, stay engaged. Uh, I would like people to continue to put pressure on um, their uh, a local and government officials um, you know, wherever they're based because what China wants is for the world to forget about Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. They wanna take the spotlight off Hong Kong. They wanna make the world think that resistance is futile. They rolled up Tibet over the last half a century. Uh, Xinjiang seems to be under control. They've militarized the South China Sea, despite promising they wouldn't. And they've destroyed Hong Kong. And they've gotten relatively little pushback. And so just as Putin went into Georgia, he went into Crimea, uh, people did said he uh, went into Chechnya, and people are like, oh, yeah, that's too bad. Nothing we can do about it. And then he finally goes into Ukraine, and the world's like, we have to stand up. And I would say Hong Kong is a place where People should try to try to draw a line. The um, the uh, inauguration of John Lee as the new chief executive on July 1st is an interesting moment. John Lee has been sanctioned by the U.S. government for his role in destroying freedoms in Hong Kong. Are we gonna take the sanctions off and pretend that everything is normal? I certainly don't think that we should. I think that he should be held to account. I think Chinese leaders, leaders should be held to account. And I think we have to realize that the stakes in Hong Kong are way more than just uh, the fate of seven and a half million people in a once great city. The stakes really, I don't, I'm sorry to be a little over dramatic here, but the stakes really are be- between freedom and autocracy. if the the few if people want uh, a, a guy like xi jinping or vladimir putin telling them how to live what to think what they can do fine do nothing if we want to fight for the values of a free world hong kong is where um this clash of values is really taking place and i think in defending hong kong we can make it less likely that china will move on taiwan
1: That's a really sort of a big way and a profound way to sum it up. So so thank you very much for that. Now, Mark, just before you go, I have taken up a lot of your time, but um, I just want to ask you our traditional New Books Network last question. What are you working on now?
2: Well, you haven't taken up too much of my time. I'm always happy (laughs) to talk about Hong Kong, and I I appreciate your interest and the interest of everyone who's listening. and uh, I'm happy to say that i am just gotten a contract to or I've just gotten final approval to um, have my dissertation uh, on Hong- post-war uh, Hong Kong uh, uh, published. That is a it's an academic dissertation. It's going to be published by Columbia University Press. and. Uh, It uh, is um, focused on electrification in Hong Kong. It's a science and technology studies history look, but it really looks at the kind of roots of, of modern Hong Kong and the importance of electrification. So quite a different topic, but still very Hong Kong related.
1: And it does sound like a very still an important contribution to the scholarship on Hong Kong. So we'll definitely look out for that. So... Just to bring it to a close, I'm Jane Richards. I've been speaking with Mark Clifford about his book, Today, Hong Kong, Tomorrow, the World, What China's Crackdown Reveals About Its Plans to End Freedom Everywhere. Mark Clifford, thank you for your time.
2: Thanks so much, Jane. It's been a real pleasure. You're a great reader and a wonderful questioner, so appreciated talking to you.